EAG. They're leading the game. What game? The M&A game. The data conversion game. The last 18 years, EAG has helped dozens of EMP companies expedite acquisition onboarding, including the conversion of systems and data, allowing operators to hit even the most aggressive of TSAs. A 90-day TSA? Sure. 60-day TSA? No problem. 30-day TSA? Crazy, aggressive, but EAG can help. EAG has a refined, proven process to help operators integrate acquisitions and is the undisputed heavyweight champ for your M&A integration needs. For more information, visit EAGservices.com. That's right, EAGservices.com. Hey everybody, welcome to Chuck Yates Needs a Job, the podcast. Very important announcement to make. The reason you hear huffing and puffing is not because I'm big and fat. It's not because I'm old. It's because I'm at 9,500 feet elevation in Telluride, Colorado. And through the miracle of modern technology, Andy is in the Audio Realm studio in downtown Richmond, Texas, recording. And our guest, Grant Pierce, is in Vietnam. So we've got a little global action going here. So Grant, welcome to Chuck Yates Needs a Job, the podcast. Thank you so much for having me on, Chuck. Very much appreciated. Look forward to doing this. Well, you should aspire to better things, but uh, I appreciate you uh, you coming in as well. So, so Grant, I was running through kind of your, we got introduced through Colin and I was running through your LinkedIn page. You and I have traded some, some texts and the like, and I don't think I can do it justice. So I'm going to let you do it justice, but you're born in, and bred in Louisiana and now you're in Vietnam. Is that just like following crawfish or what? What? Uh, ha- walk me through how that happened. No. So, yeah, you're correct. I'm, I'm born in, uh, in, in Shreveport, Louisiana, actually. Uh, and uh, I don't know for whoever knows Shreveport. It's a it is a place of basically or, or at least when when I was born in, in the mid 70s, early mid 70s. It was a place where you're either in farming, there's a lot of cotton farms around, or you're in oil and gas. Well, I happen to be one of those that ended up in uh, How did I get into Vietnam? Well, I, I started my career in where I, where I grew up in Shreveport. Uh, then moved to the Gulf of Mexico for, for about a decade. And then I had the opportunity to to take some work overseas and, and I jumped at the chance. And uh, after a, a few years in West Africa and Angola and um, contract coming to an end, I was offered a to stop and do a, a one-off job in, in Vietnam on the way home. And being that I never thought I would uh, end up in Vietnam or probably never even visit Vietnam, I, I took the chance. And that was 2007. And since... 
married and and have two children here. My wife's Vietnamese, and yeah, that's uh that's kind of what got me into Vietnam, uh, the oil and gas industry. Oh, that's pretty cool. And what what do you do? What kind of engineer are you? What kind of uh, work do you do in the field? What's kind of been your your career trade? Uh, so drilling and completion focused, uh, and then and then specifically uh, well completion and well intervention. So in other words, after the the well is is constructed and brought into production, or or actually completion just per prior to it being brought into production and then uh, performing intervention on the well to fix problems after it's been producing, et cetera. Gotcha. Gotcha. And um, yeah, that's pretty, that's pretty cool. The uh, I've never, I've never been to Vietnam, but I've got a friend that's a chef who literally went and toured Vietnam said it's one of the prettiest places he's ever been in his life. And the food was, he said, the food was amazing, wound up coming back and he owns a restaurant and the restaurant wound up being very, very heavily Vietnamese slash Southeast Asia influenced for a couple of years. And so uh, I will trade me going to Vietnam for him going to Vietnam just because I got to eat that stuff for a few years. It was, it was pretty cool. It's fantastic. Yeah, it's people people find it funny when I say this, but but if you compare the the look of Louisiana and, and South Louisiana specifically uh, to at least at least Southern Vietnam, it is very much similar. Uh, you know, rivers, bayous, swamps, lots of water, etc. And the people are. Are, are also very similar in, in their values as well. You know, they they really cherish family. Uh, actually, you know, the, the family here is, is living with the with the children until they until they pass. So it's it is a little bit different. Where in the West we tend to stick people in nursing homes. Uh, that doesn't that doesn't happen here. But but it, there's a lot of similarities, and that's why I find it. I've always found it so easy to to live here. Is there is there French influence in Vietnam? I, I'm or am I making up that the the French were involved in Vietnam at some point? No, of course there's a there's still a heavy French influence uh, before actually before the before the war before the Vietnam War they were they were uh, here in quite quite a heavy strength. Um, they. They basically uh, ran Vietnam. It was it was one of their. I don't know if I, I don't know if the right word is colony, but but certainly it was uh, it was heavily occupied by France uh, back in history. Oh wow, the the parallels to Louisiana are, are pretty interesting. That's uh, that's that's pretty wild. What so and uh, like I said, I appreciate you coming on the the podcast because. You know, I, I don't know if it had, you had reached out to Colin or Colin at Senior Story reached out to you and somehow I got roped in. But, I mean, you've got one of the wildest fucking COVID tales I've ever heard. And, uh, yeah, no, I, I'm glad you can laugh at it because uh, as, as you and I kind of texted about it and I read about it, boy, it was uh, 
It was a rough one. So I was going to, I was going to just ask you if you wouldn't mind kind of telling us, you know, what you went through and, and how all that went down. Cause, uh, like I said, wildest fucking COVID story I've heard. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I'm just to clarify, I, I did, I reached out to Colin some time ago. Uh, I came home back in December and, and, uh, and was, was at the point where we needed to, the, the, myself, this, this, this story happened for, between two of us. There were uh, myself and another friend of mine that was also working as a consultant that went on the same project with me. So we, we just got to a point where we weren't being heard by anybody. No, no questions were being answered. No replies from, from, uh, from the company we contracted to, uh, Shell Nigeria Exploration and Production Company slash Shell uh, SBDC, which is another uh, company created there uh, by Shell, actually, and, uh, and, the, and the agent we were working for. So we, we weren't getting any replies from these guys as, as far as help, assistance, while we were stranded. So we thought it's time to, it's, it's time to let people know what, what happens uh, in the situation so it doesn't happen to other people. So, yeah, the, the, what, what happened was is we, uh, we were offered uh, contracting positions with Shell Nigeria uh, the beginning of 2020. We'll call it mid-January last year. Uh, and due to the fact that what we were looking at was about six to eight months worth of worth of total work, uh, we were told it was going to be handled by a reputable agency in Nigeria. So we got our contracts and and uh, and keep in mind, COVID had already sort of surfaced by then. So at least here in, in Vietnam, uh, being so close to China, uh, things were already being shut down. The kids had already, our kids had already not returned to school. They, they held the kids back for, for an, another, had already started holding the kids back from going back to school. And so that would, that would have been say February, mid February wise, by the time we got our contracts and, and signed our contracts and then committed to, uh, acquiring our visas, uh, that acquiring the visas in itself was a bit of a, a circus due to the fact that things were already being shut down and the Nigerian lady who does interviews in Hanoi uh, was not in the country at the time. She, she also handles other countries within the Asia PAC region. So after, uh, after a few trips to the embassy in Hanoi, we're both, both myself and Stan, the friend of mine that went with me on this contract, we're both in Vong Tau, which is near to Ho Chi Minh city, which is all the way in, it's in the South. Basically, thousand thousand kilometers, or I'm I'm not even hundred percent sure I'm correct on that kilometer distance. But anyway, it's a it's a fair distance away. It's a it's a few hour flight. Uh, so we we ended up getting our visas eventually uh, after basically showing up at, at the embassy, which was supposedly closed, and banging on the door and and begging to get the visas. Uh, so visas in hand, uh, we had flights out actually booked very quickly the next day. Uh, so this is, to put it in a time perspective, this is the beginning of March 
I think it was March 12th is, is the day that we actually flew from Vietnam to Lagos. So we got into Lagos and met up with our, our, our agent who was handling this company by the, the company by the name of Servitico Limited. Uh, he met us at the airport and, and, you know, I, I don't know how many people have, have traveled into countries in West Africa, but, but the, the scene is, is usually pretty chaotic in the airport. There's a lot of people and a lot of people are asking for, to carry your bags, to, can you, do you want to ride, et cetera. And this is, and, and Lagos is, is no different. Um, but pretty, pretty easily, pretty easy entry into Nigeria. Um, and then that would, we landed on a Thursday. So, so basically we were told, look guys, it's been a, you, you've had a, a long trip here, which uh, not, not a very long trip in, in our mind, but it was the weekend, right? So, and sort of the COVID uh, work from home schemes have already started by the majors. Um, so we were told we we're going to be in the hotel for the weekend and then we'll, we'll pick it up on Monday, get introduced to Shell, et cetera. Uh, it is worth noting that, that we needed from uh, the Shell well operations manager there that was handling uh these operations, we needed permission from him to enter the to enter the country to to even fly, due to the fact that Shell had already put in effect work from home policies. Anybody that wasn't required, then you stay home. So we got approval from from this guy, and and uh, we're allowed to enter. Uh, the following that following, so we spent the, the weekend in the in the hotel uh, that we finally were able to acquire. Uh, it was, I guess, the bells sort of started going off the the first day on landing. As when we landed, we didn't have a we didn't even have a place to stay. Uh, we were basically left in the back of this SUV while our agent ran around to different hotels and, and tried to get us rooms. And in the end, eventually shell got us into, uh, into the place where they had the rest of the, their staff and consulting staff stay in third party groups, et cetera. Now is when you talk, when you grant, when you talk about the, the agent, I know you were talking that technically you were working for a subcontractor of shell but it sounds like you're at least communicating with shell with shell that there's there's obviously a a relationship there is the agent a third party or does the agent work for the subcontractor who's kind of this person that i'll just quote unquote say babysitter yeah sure so so definitely there's uh there's a, a there's communication with shell i mean they are they're the ones who who do the the interview and and qualify you to to say okay these are the people we want to be hired but this agent is is working for this third party agency who is providing people to shell to chevron to exxon etc so so basically they're they're a agent that that contracts people uh and then bills shell for their time etc gotcha 
and that and that that's pretty common isn't it in terms of uh international operations in terms of of how things get staffed uh it is uh, it you know in in uh in a sense it gives I'm, i don't want to say it's all it gives uh companies the ability to not have people on their on their uh, balance sheet right uh and also it, it recuses liability uh, if something were to happen, God forbid. Uh, so yeah, it is a, it's a standard, it's a standard contracting model. I mean, that's, there's so many third party, uh, consultant agencies out there that, that simply do this, you know, they're the go between, between a consultant and a major company or, or a minor company. It's not an abnormal model gotcha. by any means. Yeah, gotcha. So you're, so you're, so March 12th is kind of when I believe that was when the shit hit the fan with uh, the Russians and the Saudis deciding they wanted to, to quote unquote have a oil battle. And so I think, I think, I think that day oil prices fell 10 bucks or, you know, something, to, something to that effect. Uh, and you're right, COVID, I, be, I believe quarantine starts happening the next week or the following week, at least in the United States. And uh, so you're, you're hanging out in a, in a hotel in Nigeria at this point. Yeah, exactly. I think uh, I, I, I'm not sure on the, on the oil price deal because I, I, just, I, I distinctly remember the, the one that I distinctly remember is the minus 35 one which didn't come until later but definitely um, that was that was that was certainly in the mix at that time I mean that had been going on for a bit right uh, and yeah as far as as far as the COVID and, and quarantine deals uh, I know like like Vietnam for instance uh, shut the doors on March 20th. And that means they they locked down fully and nobody is coming in or going out via international flights, uh, via borders, et cetera. So, so yeah, we were we were sitting there in a in a hotel thinking or, or questioning, is this are are we really gonna do this work? Or did we did we come here uh, just to be turned around? And of course, you know, we were the both of us were were keen to do the work and keen to commit to whatever time we needed to stay there if the work was going forward. But, but boy, could we have uh, foreseen, you know, the the lockdowns that were coming and and the fact that we were going to have our contracts uh, canceled, you know, by a force majeure? Then, then certainly, probably we would have started suggesting to to get us back on a plane home before uh, before things went for the worst so so kind of what were what were next steps you're you're hanging out in the hotel that weekend a bright and early monday morning what happens so uh monday we were picked up by our agent uh and taken to their their office sort of given a, a 10 minute introduction on on what was gonna what what they needed from us as far as uh, documentation to fill out for health insurance, uh, handing over passports so we can have our, our work visa uh, sent, our passport sent off to, to the main city there in Abidjan and, and have a bank accounts opened, et cetera. And 
then we were taken, strangely enough, we were we were told that we were going to have two apartments uh, in Lagos, in, in uh, Shell's compound, uh, which was a bit strange for, for two guys that are going to be doing work offshore. You know, overseeing operations offshore, but but we were going to be doing some front end engineering and planning in Lagos for for perhaps the first say 30, 40 days of each of our uh, hitches. So uh, we were told we needed to go pick out furniture for these apartments. So before we went to sell, we were taken to a furniture shop and went and picked out uh, furniture to outfit these apartments. Uh, which, like I said, it's very, very, very strange uh, for both of us as as technical consultants to be be in the middle of, of this part of the equation. But anyway, we we did so, and after lunch that that day, we were brought over to Shell, uh, where we were introduced introduced to the team. Uh, the expat staff at, at that point were were not allowed. You know, the, the guys that were rotating in the country, they weren't there. They were they were back home. Uh, in Houston or, or in Holland, uh, respectively. So we were introduced to the, the, the guy who was in charge of the, the local team. And, and he told us, look, uh, while you're doing all your uh, visa work and getting bank accounts set up, what we're, what we're going to have you do is, since we're already in work from home routines, is we're going to have you stay in the hotel. We'll get you the documentation you need to start planning. We are planning on going for, forward with the work right now, but obviously with with COVID being introduced, it, it's a it's you know there's there's a a question there. So this week we'll be discussing what what is to happen and uh, and we will stay in touch and, and let you know. Uh, so we we basically went went that when that after after we were introduced to the the team, met everybody in the office that were applicable. Mm-hmm. Then we went back to our our hotel and and remained there for what the rest of I think until Friday or sorry Thursday that week. Uh, on Thursday, then we were told that okay, your apartment's ready. Uh, the furniture's there, and it ended up being one apartment, but but you know whatever. Uh, so we were we were basically taken over to this apartment in Shell's compound and, and dropped off. <clears throat> and this is a place where families live. This is uh, not generally where single staff lives. There's no shops or anything inside this compound. It's in the middle of a, a neighborhood in, in Lagos, uh, you know, with a with barbed wire and security. Uh, and we were dropped there without our. The contract stated we have a we have a vehicle and a driver the whole time. We we still don't have a driver and a vehicle to this point. Um, and the story we getting from the agent is well, it's we we have to purchase the vehicle. You know we have to get the driver set up. Blah blah blah. So uh, we remained in in this hotel and then went to our apartment. Uh, so we got in the apartment on Thursday night and uh, basically spent the weekend there. Uh, Saturday, we were approached by the asset manager for the apartment who was, who was Shell staff. And he saw us out by the, the pool cooking some, cooking some barbecue and said, basically, what the hell are you doing here? Uh, who are you? 
and we, you know, of course, hey, we're two consultants that are working on this project. Uh, we've been put here by this group. Uh, and he says, well, on Monday, the airport is shutting down. The air, airspace is locking midnight on Monday night. Uh, you need to get in touch with your agent and get in touch with your contract holder and get things set up to get the hell out of here. Okay. Uh, not, actually, not, not surprising seeing just watching people move around uh, Legos. Uh, I'll just keep in mind and or I'll put this in your mind as well that during this week that we're that we've been in uh, Legos, there has been minimal communication with our agent. He is the type of guy that uh, doesn't answer phone calls, doesn't answer emails, doesn't answer WhatsApp, etc. You basically need to go get a taxi and go to his office and beat on his door for him to reply. So we tried to call uh, our agent uh, numerous times on Saturday, on that Saturday, no reply. Uh, the team lead for Shell actually called us and said, look, uh, things are, this is what's happening. Uh, can you get, try to get a hold of your agent? And we told him what, what we were dealing with, and he said, let me try. Uh, anyway, no, no contact on Saturday. Again, Sunday, the asset manager visited us again and said basically the same thing and, and, said, and said, okay, let me start making some phone calls and see what, see what I can do as well. Um, no, nothing, nothing on Sunday from, from the guy as well. Um, Monday morning, 8 o'clock came and uh, the, the team lead called and said, hey, <laughs> you guys, the airport is shutting tonight. We need to get you out of here ASAP. Now, Vietnam had already closed the doors two days prior to that. Uh, we are both residents in Vietnam where our family resides. Uh, we have no ties to the U.S., but we're both U.S. citizens. No bank accounts, no support, et cetera, there. Um, uh, the way these contracts are set up and policy is, is you take a person from one point and you return them back to that same point. It's a point of origin contract, basically. You know, point of origin, point of return, which means if you take somebody from Ho Chi Minh City, where we both flew from, that's where you return them to. You don't take somebody from Ho Chi Minh City and, and send them back to Houston. It's just not the way contracts so are set me, up. Hey, hey, Grant, let me ask you a quick question here is, is this a standard contract um, that you've signed multiple different times in your career and other contract workers sign as well? Or do you get pretty specific in negotiating this contract with, in effect, Shell through the, uh, through the agent? Uh, a, a little bit of both. Uh, I, would, I would say it is an, a standard procedure. And you do have some uh, negotiation, usually, usually on the rates specifically with the uh, with the end client. And I'll, I'll say that in the in the future, <laughs> I will be doing much more due diligence with these contracts, including a lawyer to to look over them. But in the past, I I, I haven't. 
and obviously hindsight's twenty twenty, right? You can't go back and change that. But but it, in in contracting terms, yeah, it looked like a a cookie cutter contract. So kind of like buying and selling a house, you definitely have boxes you need to fill in and different things you need to check, and there are probably some special provisions that apply to the unique situation, but a lot in the way is just kind of boilerplate that's uh, that's been previously negotiated through through time, if you will. Yeah, correct. That's correct. So, all right. So it's Monday morning and the airport's closing at midnight. What do you do? <laughs> so, so we finally get in, in touch with uh, the agent, uh, and we have a three way call with the agent and the and the team lead there and. The team lead asked us, okay, go. So Vietnam's already closed. Can we send you back to the U.S.? No, no, you can't send us back to the U.S. Where can we, where can we send you? You've, we've got to get you out of here. Well, we can try to get to Cambodia, which is next door to Vietnam. And, and then maybe we can get across the border from there. Okay. So let's get, let's get things lined up. Now our agent is still of the, the thought that, uh, the asset, which is this compound where all these people live, is is going to shut is not going to shut down. I I forgot to mention that um, when the asset manager visited us that weekend, uh, the main point was his those that asset the, the whole compound was being shut down, which means they were evacuating all their staff. They were going to minim, minimal security levels, moving everybody the hell out basically. Uh, so at, on Monday morning, when when we we're telling our agent this, he's still of the thought, no, Shell's Shell's not going to shut down. They're not moving. They're not moving that staff out. Leave your leave your bags there, and let's let's have a visit. But no, we we saw what was was coming, so we packed our bags up, told him to get us the car as soon as possible, and we were coming to his office, and we needed to have a serious talk. Uh, so so we did that. We 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 were already actually packed. We got the car, got over to his office, just shy of, of lunchtime. Uh, at this point, our passports are still in in route from uh, back from Abuja. They had to cancel our work visas being uh, being initiated and and get our passports back so we could even travel. So our passports were were due back in into the domestic airport at I think it was around noon that day when when they actually ended up showing up. So basically, we went to we went into his office and then were handed the phone uh, to deal with a travel agent. Uh, this specific contract, uh, sometimes the operator will handle uh, travel. Sometimes the contract agency will handle travel. Well, this specific contract, the the contract agency was was dealing with the with our travel. So instead of instead of them dealing with it, we were we were handed the phone and, and said, look. Tell your tell the travel agent what you need and and where you need to go and they will see if they can get you flights. So of course with with the COVID restrictions coming into play in so many places and it and it changing shit about a about a minute at that time. Uh, hard very hard to to get some travel points. You know, going from Lagos to Cambodia. Uh, we couldn't transit through Hong Kong because they were already uh, denying American citizens at that point. Uh, we couldn't 
travel or we didn't we didn't know it at that time but we we couldn't travel through uh bangkok because we didn't have covid test i mean all this was very last minute so anyway we we finally did get flights which we had booked ourselves which we booked with the agent uh with no help from from the uh contract agent with the exception of providing a the travel agent on the phone so we get tickets to go fly through uh turkey fly through istanbul uh then transit through doha qatar then transit through bangkok thailand into Phnom Penh. um so that night or that afternoon we went to the airport immediately after those flights were booked just shy of 12 picked up our passports, which thankfully were already at the cargo hold and in the domestic airport uh, and got checked in, which was surprisingly enough a a fairly painless affair considering people were in panic mode. Uh, And then it's, I I think it was five minutes until midnight before airspace completely shut down. Our plane took off and, and we flew to Istanbul. Uh, on arrival into Istanbul, we found out that we needed to acquire a visa and transfer to an airport, which was two hours away, uh, because our, our travel agent never told us that we, we needed to change airports. But thankfully, we were able to acquire a uh, visa on arrival in, in Turkey, uh, get on a bus, and transferred to our our other departure airport, which was a few hours away. Uh, and COVID uh, restrictions were were starting to really come into play uh, in in Turkey as well. People were were being heavily checked on what countries they had been in prior, right? Uh, and of course, they were they were doing the normal uh, medical questionnaires and taking people's temperatures, et cetera, as you as you came in. But all considering, fairly uh, painless affair. We got over to the other airport where where we were to, 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 to depart from. Uh, we had, I don't know, 10 hours layover. Everything was, was covered up with plastic. And basically the only thing that were open at that point were the, were the flight flights leaving and going. You know, all your uh, shops and, and such had already been closed down. So upon getting ready to check in, uh, of course, uh, you know, they, the agents already know who's coming, who's coming on and, and if there are going to be issues. So, uh, as soon as we stepped up in the business class line and stepped forward, they went, Oh, you're Stanley, you're Alan, you're going, you need to go to Cambodia, right? Correct. Okay. We need to have your negative COVID tests. We need to have uh, proof of, 50,000 in health insurance, blah, blah, blah. Do you have that? No, we do not. Uh, the agent had, though he had uh, our papers for health insurance the week prior, we still haven't had health insurance enacted for us. And regarding the COVID test, like I said, everything was very last minute. So there would have been never been a chance to, to have a, a COVID test done while we were in Nigeria. So we said, okay, what are our, what are our options here? Where, where can we go? Well, we can re, uh, we can redirect you through Hong Kong. 
where, like I said, they were already turning away American citizens. Or you can opt to stay in Turkey and your flights will still be, your tickets will still be valid. Uh, you know, just to wait and see if things clear up in the next week and you're able to, to move forward. Uh, so we elected to, to stay there. We couldn't, there were no other options due to the fact we couldn't transit Thailand uh, and, and other places were starting to also close the doors. Uh, so at that point, basically called our agent and said, hey, we can't go anywhere. We're, we're stopped in Turkey. We need assistance, which means hurry the fuck up and get us paid so we will have money to support ourselves because we don't know how long we're going to be here. And that was something that was discussed when we were in their office the previous day. You know, uh, look, we're being sent off to uh, to uh, on a flight. We don't know where we're going to end up, but we know we're not going straight to Vietnam. We don't know how long we're going to be stuck here. We're going to need support, which means we're going to need these uh, payments from from our our time spent there and our, our cancellation on our contract. We're going to need these as soon as possible so we can not only support ourselves, but we can provide money to our families that are expecting that as well. Right. <laughs> so uh, that would I don't that would have been Tuesday, the following Tuesday. I think that was the 20, 22nd or, or 23rd, 23rd, perhaps uh, where we were in Turkey in, in Istanbul, just outside of Istanbul. And uh, I've got a, a good friend that's, from Kazakhstan and he's got ties to Turkey and a lot of good friends in Turkey. So I, I phoned him and said, Hey, hey man, we're in Turkey. Uh, can you help us? Can you provide some, some, uh, some people here that can help us so we know where we should and should not go. And so we can get a better idea of what's actually happening on the ground here. So he hooked us up with one of his friends and, and they took care of us with as far as directing us where to go while we were in Turkey. Uh, at that point, Istanbul, uh, we're also talking about locking the city down. Um, so we thought that's, this is not the best place for us to be in a, in a, in a place where the population density is quite high. Let's, let's get somewhere where, there's not so many people. There's not so many people coming in and going out where we would feel a bit safe, a bit more safe. Because we didn't, you know, in early days of, of COVID, we didn't we didn't know what we were dealing with. Nobody did. I don't I, actually. Yeah, I don't think nobody did. Yeah. <laughs> so that's uh, what we did is we spent the night in in the hotel and near, near the airport there, and then the next morning we booked our own flights to go to the to go out to the west coast. Uh, of Turkey in a place called Bodrum, uh, and with no help from the, with no help from our agent. I mean, that it, this is, uh, the guy who, when I called him that night from the airport and said, we're stuck in Turkey, it just, uh, there was just silence on the other end of the line. <clears throat> so we got, uh, we got uh, our flights booked and before they, before they started, uh, closing down airspace there in Turkey and, and got to the place, to a place called Bodrum which is basically just across from, from Greece. <clears throat> so that, that, uh, that day while we were getting checked in, got some emails from the agent uh, to fill out the health or the health insurance documentation again, because he had never, 
initially sent it off. So we, we did that and he got our health insurance enacted, thankfully. Uh, and we flew out to, to, uh, to Bodrum. Uh, two days later, which I think was probably the 24th or the 25th, uh, Turkey closed all their airspace. So no more, no more flights moving around. Uh, soon after they closed all their borders between their regions or provinces or states, as we call it in the U.S., and uh, so, so movement was extremely limited. During, during all this, it just kind of hit me. I, I mean, are you able to call home? I guess maybe you're using WhatsApp or something like that, or how, how much contact are you having with your family during all this? Oh, we're, uh, we, we stay in, we stay in touch via Skype or WhatsApp or messenger, whatever the, uh, whatever the, the, the mode is right and normally somebody that works internationally normally the first thing we do when we get into a country is grab a sim card or get somebody to grab us a sim card so we can so we can have some uh, communications uh, we didn't we weren't being in turkey only a day we hadn't we hadn't got that far yet but but over the next couple of days we we actually acquired sim cards but yeah staying and staying in touch at that point just via via skype or with my kids are with our kids. Normally it's a Facebook messenger. So they knew, uh, they, they knew what was going on to an extent. Right. Okay. Now the, uh, my, my oldest kiddo is the global traveler who's been to China, Japan, Ecuador, Galapagos Islands, Cuba, et cetera. I would be lost trying to navigate all that, but that, so all right, so you're west coast of uh, west coast of Turkey, and they've shut down. What what kind of happens next? Well, uh, we sort of uh, <laughs> try try to settle in for for what might be a long haul. So uh, what was talked about, like I said, was they were going to advance us five thousand dollars to to take care of our immediate needs. And our contract stipulations were once once uh, invoices are approved by Shell, we would be paid within a week of the, the remainder of our contracts. So okay, we can we can deal with that. Uh, so of course we were expecting that, that we were receiving these advances basically immediately. Uh, that didn't happen. Uh, so we started communicating or trying to communicate back and forth with our, with our agent, uh, again, with, with little replies back. Uh, and that went on for, I don't know, four or five days, maybe, maybe a week uh, before I, I ended up getting Shell involved and the contract manager involved saying, hey, look, this is what I was discussing with our agent. We expect to happen. Uh, we are here under our own steam and our own support. We need help. Can you please push the agent to get this done? Great reply from from those guys. And yes, he ended up pushing them to to get uh, to get these advances done. Or at least my my colleague got his advance. I didn't get my advance because they. Miss, uh, botched up the the account details, so it never actually never was sent into my account uh, that that week. 
that went on for a, a few more weeks before I finally got uh, my my advance. So basically, uh, Stan helped us both out and, and took care of all our expenses until until that that was done. So basically, we uh, it was it was day to day at that point. Uh, Turkish airspace was locked down. The borders were closed. Uh, of course, Vietnam have been locked down and. And no, no talk of at that point of opening things back up in, in any given any time frame. Uh, so day to day, wondering both uh, when we we're going to get paid and, and when we we're going to be able to get home. Uh, we went back and forth with our agent as far as our principal owed uh, for roughly thirty days. Uh, and also it was, it was that amount of time before I got my advance. I actually, I got the principal amount that, that we rode, uh, before I got the advance, I had to keep bugging him to, you know, about the, about the five grand that was hanging out there. That was, that was part of our, uh, our package. I mean, it was, uh, it's not as if he was giving me 5,000. It was, he was taking 5,000 off the principal and, and advancing it to me, right? So anyway, say 30, 30 days in, we get uh, we get paid, and with the uh, assistance from from Shell, uh, basically we were being told by him that banks are shutting down in Nigeria. I'm having trouble transferring the money, blah blah blah. And I I finally had enough and said, Henry, look, we are here in Turkey. And if you can't solve this, then I'm sure that Shell can. And the story I got back was it's not, but it's not their responsibility. I said, well, it's, it's, no, it's not their responsibility to provide that cash, but it is uh, them that we were working for. It is them who we are contracted to. So if you can't get it done yourself, then I'll get them involved. So that I did. I got. I ended up getting Shell involved at a at a high level of management there in the, on the ground in in Lagos, and within two days we were paid and money in account. So this is uh, so, this is so Grant. We're, we're, we're at the end. Of, we're at the end of April at this point, Chuck. Go ahead. Okay. So just yeah, just real quick. It sounds like at least through call it the first 60 days or a couple of months, it sounds like at least at this, at least through this point, Shell's been a pretty good actor and has been a partner in terms of, uh, of helping you guys out in a, in a crappy situation. Am I reading that right? Yeah, that's correct. That's correct. Okay. So, uh, so we get, so we get paid, um, End of end of April. We have we're we're still hanging out here. Uh, we have no idea when we're going to be able to. First off, we're no idea when we're going to be able to travel from from Bodrum where where we are. No idea when we're going to be able to leave the country. No idea when we're going to be able to get back in Vietnam. So we approached the agent again and said, "Hey." We are basically still on contract here. Yes, the contract was canceled due to force majeure, but as per the contract terms, point of origin to point of return, 
we're not back to point of, of origin yet. So in, in all technical aspects, we're still under contract. We need some help. We are spending our money for hotels and food every day. We need your support. And we're told uh, the client is not going to agree to giving you anything. Fine. So again, uh, back to unstable on my end. Yeah. Okay. You're back. I can hear you now. Okay. Okay. So I uh, went back to Shell and requested assistance with uh, with being, yeah, supported until we got back to our point of origin. Typically, and I know of numerous other consultants who were actually in similar situations during this, both staff employees and contractors, typically what happens is you're paid a standby rate, which is, in general, is 50% of your day rate. Okay. Hey, Grant, I can't hear you. I think uh, it's time that people are waking up over here. Hey, hey, Grant. Hey, I just had everybody in my house turn their friggin' computers off. Man, sorry about that. <laughs> that's that's funny. Uh, that's funny. Uh, everybody is. Uh, everybody has obviously woken up and uh, and flipped on YouTube and started streaming YouTube. So, whereas it wouldn't have been an issue before, it, it seems to now be an issue since they're. I don't know. Ten people sharing my connection. <laughs> yes. No. I've got. I've got three kiddos. I understand how that goes. Um, <laughs> so. So I think. Um, I think where we are is is, you know, you're kind of in lockdown and in Turkey, uh, and and I think you're going to talk a little bit about you know haggling with the subcontractor to get paid and all. Um, and then, then, you know, at some point you got a happy ending to the story. Cause you at least, uh, get back home and, and the like, and then we'll jump into, you know, just kind of the personal aspect of, of going through that. And then we'll kind of talk, talk energy advocacy. But I think, I think that's about where we were, as I recall, was you were starting to to haggle for guys. I got to get paid something here for hanging out, and not being home yet. Yeah, yeah, that's right. We're on the same page. Good. Okay, so basically, I well together together with my friend and colleague Stan, there we put together a, a an email to to Shell and and their sort of upper management in, uh, in Lagos, uh, because we weren't getting any feedback from our agent and didn't feel that, that they were, uh, specifically worried about where, what, what was happening with us. I mean, to give you an example, uh, our expenses 
or their expenses, which mean all this furniture they purchased for the apartment and and the odds and ends for us were, were already approved and into Shell system and they were paid before our, our invoices were. And how do I know this? Is because we we both both of us have uh, had views on on the uh, Shell's uh, invoicing system and, and the dates that everything were approved. Our, our agent had no intention at that point of, of helping us anymore. So I got Shell involved and uh, we're told by the, uh, the director there, uh, Simon, that they were, they were looking into it and they would come back to us with, uh, with a reply on, on what could be done. So about, I don't know, a week, a week went by and, and we got a reply from a guy named Mark Copper and basically said, uh, talk to your agent for assistance. But what we would expect you to do is to get on a humanitarian flight from Turkey. Uh, airspace had, had started to open up for, for, for things like that, for diplomatic flights. Of course, cargo had never stopped. Etc. But uh, the borders were still locked down in between regions, so so it wasn't a it wasn't there was no uh, way to do that anyway. But but what he suggested we do was to get on a humanitarian flight back to the U.S. And he referenced uh, Shell's policies are to return you to your place of nationality, which is bullshit. Uh, I've, I've worked on more shell projects in the last 28 years than I've worked for any other company in my life and their policies state, uh, you return the person to the place that you took them from. Uh, so we asked for, we asked for those excerpts from their, from their policy, please provide those, but, but no, we're not returning to the U S. Uh, we can't get human. We couldn't get on the humanitarian flights if we wanted to, because we're still, way away from that that place where those flights are leaving from so we said look please uh here's what here's what we're dealing with it is now the beginning of may uh we were paid for 30 days we're past that at this point we're not home give us some help uh so some not not much communication happened uh Eventually, I got his boss involved, and he said, okay, we're, we're dealing with this. So a reply came back from our agent eventually saying, what are, you, what are your expectations for this? And our reply was, well, we, are, we expect a standby rate. We are, what we are doing is standing by. We aren't returned home. So that's what, that's what the expectations are. Well, they're not gonna they're not gonna agree to that. Well, you take the you take those rates to them and tell them our expectations, and then we can go from there. Sure, I'll do that. So, I, I think I don't know. I'll say ten days went by, but probably probably is closer to two weeks. Um, we got a a PDF sent to us, and I'll just I'll just read this PDF to you uh, from from Shell. <laughs> Refer to the correspondence requesting for support for Joseph Paskowitz and Alan Grant Pierce, who were stranded in Turkey in transit due to the closure of airspaces as a result of COVID-19 outbreak. 
as part of the company assistance and good faith to ensure the welfare of both consultants currently stuck in Turkey are properly catered for, we will provide a total sum of $7,605 per consultant to you solely for the purposes of remitting the same to consultants as assistance from Shell Nigeria. Please note this payment is not a legal or contractual obligation, but merely being made as a gesture of care to the consultants in trying times. As such, this gift is not intended to, nor does it create an employer, employee, or other relationships between Shell Nigeria and the consultants, nor does it create any form of precedence in dealing between Shell Nigeria and Servitico. Servitico is a consulting agency. By this notice, Servitico is to raise a request for approval of $7,605 to the consultants. Servitico is to provide within 10 working days of payment being made by Shell Nigeria proof of remittance to the consultants, which indicates that consultants have been duly informed that assistance was provided. Remain safe. The date on this is May 11th, 2020. So as soon as we received this notice, we replied to both Shell and our agent saying this is not agreeable. Uh, we are not yet home. And what this amounts to is 120 U.S. dollars per day to take care of us, to take care of everything. It's not agreeable. Um, the industry standard is at minimum standby rate, which is roughly on, on the day rates that we were on there is roughly seven times that amount. So say 750 US dollars per day would be reasonable. So what happened was no, uh, there was no reply past that point. Um, the money was deposited in our accounts and people went silent. And when you say people went silent, when you say people went silent, it's subcontractor, agent, and shell. So total blackout. Yes, correct. Uh, God, that's just—I mean, that's just crazy. It, you know, during a, uh, especially given the circumstances, doing a during a pandemic, uh, you know, there there are times when. Uncontrollable things happen, acts of war, pandemics, uh, weather, very bad weather-related things happen where you expect duty of care. And in, in policies, in uh, corporate uh, responsibilities, it's written that duty of care will be given during these times. And obviously that, that didn't... Uh, that didn't apply to, to us, <laughs> sadly enough. Yeah, no, I mean, we've had we've had stuff like that pop up. Certainly not anything as, as draconian as lockdown because of pandemic, but it's, you know, hey, guys, we're going to get you home. And then, and, you know, we'll make, we'll make sure you're, we're paying for your hotel. If you promise you're not staying at the Ritz Carlton. And we'll argue about money, but let's at least get you home and let's make sure, you know, you're not coming out of out of pocket because, man, that 
that's tough to sit there and, and negotiate because at that point, I mean, there's not even relative strength index at this point. You're fucked and, and they're, you know, they hold all the cards at that point. hundred uh, percent. Yeah. Sort of, uh, you know, for somebody that that's been doing nearly three decades, I was, I was floored and, and baffled by the whole situation. And then Stan as well, Stan, Stan's equivalent. I mean, I think he's close closer to, to 25 years, but, but also somebody who's worked in the business for so long and been, been from country to country. So definitely out of uh, this one came out of left field for both of us. Uh, so this was, this was the end of the, by the time we got that, that deposit, that would have been, say the end of may i think it was may 25th when that deposit was made uh but after like i said after may 12th 13th and then there was there was silence uh, eventually uh it was the big beginning of june uh where turkey opened their airspace so what we, we had we had been planning uh of course uh to try to get back at least into cambodia uh so Cambodia started allowing U.S. citizens in, and then Turkey opened their airspace. So what we did is we acquired, uh, we got in touch with the embassy and Cambodian embassy and consulate in Turkey, uh, sent them our passports, and we got uh, Cambodian visas, uh, which would allow us to travel in. You know, granted we had negative COVID. So what we did then is we booked flights back out to or back to Istanbul. Uh, Got a got a place to stay for a, a week. Uh, made contact with hospitals around the area and, and found one that that we could actually get a, a COVID test done and, and have results back within. Uh, I, I think we needed a for to entry to Cambodia. It was like seventy two no more than seventy two hours before you entered to have that uh, test done. So so we found a hospital that was able to do that and give us back. Uh, tiny results and we departed turkey and and went into uh non uh i think that was that would have been like the second week in, in cambodia second week of uh of june landed in cambodia and from there uh well we did we did have some communications with the, the agent again at that point uh because what had happened was qatar uh, airways canceled uh, our return flight. So basically, our our ticket from Turkey uh, on forward back to Cambodia had been canceled due to the COVID restrictions put in place. So it was uh, the conversation basically went went something like, "Look, uh, we need tickets booked now, um, and if if tickets aren't booked now, then then we will look at other options." Uh, Keep in mind that we have copies of both of your passports. So if we need to go some legal routes, then then we will do so. But uh, we, we would suggest you get tickets re-initiated and booked as soon as possible. Uh, so they they replied on that and, and did so. Uh, and we're also curious why I mentioned their passports. But but anyway, that's. It was it was a, a strange situation. They, they didn't want to. Uh, uh, basically, what they told us was, when Vietnam opens back up, we'll we'll get your tickets rebooked. And we said, look, we're not. We don't know when Vietnam is opening back up. Uh, 
we're not we're not going to sit in Turkey. We're not being paid for this. We need to go to Cambodia now. We're going to have our COVID test, get us booked. Then we're going to travel. So they they did so. Uh, and after that, that was that was the last thing we heard from them. But so we we traveled to uh, to Phnom Penh beginning of June. Uh, entered there and uh, COVID test on entry and then put into quarantine. All those uh, tests were evaluated. Thankfully, everybody on our flight uh, no positives. So we were uh, sort of released to self quarantine for two weeks which basically just means stay together for two weeks. We, we did so, and then for the next four and a half months, we stayed in Cambodia uh, with the hope that Vietnam were, were going to open the borders or allow us back in. Uh, tried to uh, get back in a few times, go into the border, denied. Uh, eventually, uh, in, in the end of November, I made contact with a couple of companies who were who were actually acquiring entry approvals, uh, business visas for for subject matter, <laughs> and they were able to provide us to enter Vietnam. So, uh, beginning of December, and I came back into to Vietnam, did two weeks hotel quarantine here. Uh, and then came home, and then Stan was was I don't know a few weeks after me. He he departed Cambodia and came back separately. Did the same thing. Uh, and just during this, eventually, what we what we ended up spending was four and a half months in Turkey and and four and a half months in uh, in Cambodia. So nine months altogether. <clears throat> at the at the point where uh, I was getting ready to get back home, I think I was, I was probably in quarantine here. Uh, we went back to Shell and said, gentlemen, we are at 270 days. Uh, we have had no support from May until December. Can you please take a look at this and reassess and let us know your thoughts on this? Uh, we need to come up with a solution. We have been supporting ourselves this entire time, and this is not correct, even by your own policy. So let, let us know what you what you think about this. Uh, and we had no reply. Now, have you done, even if it's kind of like back of the envelope, have you done any math on, you know, if for this I should have been paid X, um, if it was a standby rate, I should have been paid Y. I came Z out of pocket for hotels, kind of living expenses. And, you know, all of the money I got was picking a, num another variable A or, or whatever. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm listening to this and I'm kind of doing the math in my head or trying. I mean, you've got to be in the hole in terms of, hotels on your credit card etc versus what they advanced you absolutely yeah we were uh by the, by the time i got home or before i even uh was able to get back into vietnam our my account was empty i mean uh i was i was borrowing money from people at that point or having people deposit money into my account at that point i think uh i i looked at the rates 
Uh, at half, uh, at standby rate of, of the 750 bucks I mentioned, we should, that should have been somewhere in the neighborhood of 200 grand. Uh, what we got paid was 30 days of that. So <clears throat> somewhere, somewhere in the neighborhood of $175,000 is where we, where we should have been, uh, based on standby rates that are that are industry norms. Uh, and what we got paid was $7,605 for that time. So obviously, uh, oh, wow. very, very much upside down. Oh, that's, that's, that's just horrible. Um, so what's, what's kind of happened now? I mean, you, you sent the email and you just haven't heard anything back. There hasn't been any communication of, of any sort back from shell or the, or the agent. Nope. Uh, I, I ended up writing an article on, uh, LinkedIn, uh, a few articles actually, uh, and making some posts on Twitter. And, and of course there were, there were posts on LinkedIn and, uh, I, I, I told uh, them in the last communication I had, look, uh, we would appreciate a hasty reply. And if there is no reply, then, then of course we're going to, we're going to go some other routes and we're going to find out uh, who or if anybody has been in a similar situation and how they solve this. Uh, so no, uh, again, no, no feedback from them whatsoever. Uh, I, I Ended up speaking to a, a journalist from BBC, and he was also writing a story about uh, all these seafarers, which were, which were being hung out, uh, not able to get home, not able to get back and travel into their own countries, and and also I started checking up with with various people in in oil and gas specifically who were also dealing with similar situations. But we never got any uh, we never got any traction, and, and I suspect it's due to the fact that you know the, the companies that are involved and 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 you know of course people that are in the industry don't want to they don't want to piss anybody off. I mean, I I had the same thought myself. How much will this affect me about even talking about it? Uh, but but end of the day, it's it's something that you don't I don't we don't want happening to other people. So you talk about it and, and get it out there and, and see how you can, uh, how people can avoid uh, things happen to them, you know? Yeah, no, I, I think it's an important story to, to, to tell. And um, I'm going to circle back to this and in, uh, in just, uh, in just a little bit. Um, I've got a whole kind of diatribe that I go on about, if we truly as an industry want to be accepted and, and be able to, you know, in effect, not be run out of business, like it feels like we're being done in the United States. I think the only way we can do that is as an industry by regaining trust of what I will say the population. And I think like step number one or maybe step number two of that is for us to police our own. So I think I think it is important you you tell this story. I do think it's important that we get a favorable re resolution out of this because at the end of the day, 
you know, people hearing a story like this and knowing that that Shell and the subcontractor have treated folks like this, it doesn't help. I mean, it just doesn't help our cause. And and they're way more willing to listen to the Gretas of this world saying that the oil and gas companies are destroying people than because they go and turn around and go, these are bad actors. And so I want to come back to that in just a second, because I know you've got a take on that. But, you know, while we're in the middle of this, and if I'm prying, you know, feel free to tell me to, to jump in a lake. But just, I mean, I was at my house in Richmond, Texas, you know, 25 miles from my uh, my kiddos who are with their mother in, in West University. And I mean, we were, you know, the kids were going back and forth kind of, you know, every every other week, like like normal. But I mean, COVID, the restrictions, the inability to talk to people, the uncertainty, man, I went into a dark place and I'm usually a pretty happy guy and the like. But I'll I'll tell you, I uh, I probably drank too much at certain certain occasions and uh and it was a pretty dark space i can't imagine what you and stan are going through you know being in a foreign country not knowing when you're even going to get back absolutely yeah uh and we did we both of both of us went into those uh those very dark spaces and and also we'll say i'm i'm normally pretty upbeat and and very positive about things as well. But when you have so much un- uncertainty, then then of course uh, it's it's much easier to go into those spaces. And and both of us, you know, were had started drinking heavily again. Um, there were lots of in, in Turkey. What they did is is uh, they didn't they didn't initiate a full lockdown in uh, at least where we were uh, straight away. What they did is they had like a weekend lockdowns or. or Friday or four day lockdowns Friday through Monday where where they basically limited you uh, to going outside then you couldn't so we couldn't leave our our hotel we could we could leave our hotel rooms and go down to the to the kitchen but we couldn't leave our hotel uh, the only saving grace for us uh, the time we were in Turkey and, and in Cambodia was uh, those days that weren't locked down we could get out and walk. So in the mornings, what sort of our routine was, was have breakfast and uh, go do our communications, you know, and, and then uh, and then go on a, a 10, 15, 20 kilometer walk uh, where we just walked around the city. I mean, by the time we left uh, Bodrum, just pretty much everybody there knew who we were. I mean, when we first landed, it was like, oh, fuck, who are these two foreigners and what are they doing here in the middle of uh, a pandemic? But uh, after after a few weeks of seeing us walk around, it's like, oh, okay. And and everybody sort of knew the knew the story. Oh, they they've gotten stuck, you know, like like so many people have around the world. But uh, yeah, uh, certainly uh, some some dark spaces there, just just due to the uncertainty of, of when are when are we going to be able to to move. Uh, and, before we got paid, it was when are when are we going to be able when are we going to get paid so so that not only we can have a little bit of uh, less stress about that, but but so we can also provide some money to our our families here in Vietnam that are expecting uh, some money 
sent to them so they can take care of things here at home. Yeah. I mean, I can't, I mean, I can't even imagine what, what is your family doing for money as you're sitting there draining bank accounts, having to pay for hotels and the like. Uh, my wife actually started a, uh, a, a food cart, you know, just, uh, not really a, a an investment in in cart, so to speak, but just uh, just started cooking uh, barbecue and started cooking food that she could sell in the morning just to make a uh, make enough money to to pay the the you know the norms the, the food and electric bills and stuff like that. And of course, I I sent uh, you know I sent a, a sizable amount of what was deposited here, so they had money to survive. Mm-hmm. And then you know kept kept what I thought I I might need there, but uh, who you know I had no idea that, that that would drag on for for such an extended period of time. Yeah, gosh, that's uh that's just crazy. The wow, I, I'm almost at a loss to wor- of words uh, in terms of even even what to say. I mean, I'm glad you uh, I'm glad you finally made it back, and I'm. I'm somewhat uh, sympathetic to to Shell and the agent. Just, I mean, this was, although it feels like we have a black swan event every year, but I mean, this was clearly out of the out of the norm and the like. But I mean, just the the not providing at least your hotel bill and some food money until you got home. I mean. You know, you can go fight about what you should have gotten paid for and whether the contract was was uh, canceled or not, force majeure, lawyers can fight. But just, I mean, leaving somebody without any money in a foreign country where they don't know anybody, uh, I just, I can't even understand how a manager at a large company allows that to happen. Fully agreed. Fully agreed. Uh, of course, this is a uh, this is a uh, a strange event, right? <laughs> um, nobody's. I, I would say, and and I'll I still say this. I've said this in the past before. Uh, I don't I don't think this is a uh, systemic problem with uh, with an organization. This is obviously not overriding uh, something with with Shell. Uh, like I said, I've worked on more Shell projects in my life than than with any other company and that is over i think a dozen different uh, locations and regions uh, around the globe and these this is uh, a special situation with a few bad actors now yeah the, the contract company itself yeah i'm not gonna i'm, I'm not gonna give them any uh, any any more rope than than i will than just to hang themselves because there were there were uh, many times when when they could have come back and and rectified the situation or at least shown some compassion in, in doing so, but they failed to do that. Uh, and I, and I, I hadn't I didn't touch on this at all, but uh, I think it was a couple of months ago I got an email from from the guy who was handling this who sent us our uh, our taxes in Nigeria. They were in our contract. They were agreed to be paid by. By the uh, by, the agency, which basically by by Shell. Uh, so he sent us our our uh, tax forms saying they've been paid, blah blah blah. 
and what the amount that was written on there was 50% of what we were actually paid. Uh, so it wasn't the true amount that, the, that he paid taxes on. So my colleague, the guy won't answer anything from me anymore. So Stan replied back and said, hey, we have a concern here that, that uh, these amounts are not correct. Uh, you didn't pay the correct amount of taxes. Are we going to get in trouble for this next time we try to enter Nigeria, et cetera? What's, what's going on here? And there were, again, <laughs> no replies from, from this guy. So, yeah, just uh, this, this company, the agent, that's, uh, that's why I'll say I don't have any compassion for them because they, they, do, they have done shit like this that just shows that they don't deserve to be in business. Yeah, and, and quite frankly, you know, look, I get the reason Shell does this. There's a lot of legal liability stuff and, and, and all, but at, at the end of the day, you know, Shell, when you, when you lay down with dogs, you get fleas. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, like I, you know, when you're granted, uh, like I said, the situation's a little bit special, the, the timing of, of the, the requirement, uh, you're, in, you're trying to get people in with, uh, with a pandemic developing uh, so, so perhaps there were some, some things that were overlooked, but you, as a contractor, you expect a major operator to do their due diligence when they're selecting their agent. And I don't, I don't know what due diligence was done here, but I can say that uh, being told that I would be uh, supplied with a reputable agent, that certainly did not fit the case here. Yeah, that it doesn't sound like it. So, well, and it's hard to make a pivot here, but I'm just going to go ahead and try and and make this pivot. You know, you've got an interesting background um, in that you know you've traveled internationally, you've been in the business for a while, and you know you're I'm sure. Uh, abreast of what's going on in the United States, but it definitely feels like there's been a tipping point of some sort where oil and gas has become the, the evil empire and the like. And so I've spent time on, I'll call it the last seven or eight podcasts, just asking, you know, everyone that's come on, you know, hey, how do we do a better job of, of selling our story? And it's kind of, you know, I, I kind of poke and prod and ask questions along the lines of sort of two fronts. One, you know, what is that message? What should it be? But it's also what kind of tactics should we use in, uh, in doing that? And I've even gone so far as asking some folks, you know, hey, how do we even measure if we're being successful or not? So I kind of just throw that out there because, uh, Love to get your take on any or all of that. And I'll just let you take the conversation wherever you want to go with it. Okay. Yeah, I, uh, I absolutely. You're correct. Uh, something, something has uh, fundamentally changed where, where oil and gas is now the, the villain, so to speak. Uh, and, I, and I think a, a number of, obviously a number of uh, things have happened with, over the last 18 months, including COVID being one of the main drivers that, that changed things. Uh, but 
Yeah, it's it's a, a funny a funny situation that we find ourselves in. I, I think that one thing that we don't do very well, uh, and uh, particularly from a large corporation point of view, is when we get uh, called a villain for for doing these things. There is no there is no uh, clarification, and there is no sort of pushback. I don't know if pushback's the right word from from larger organizations, but there's no there's no uh, reply. There is no uh, uh, there's no information provided on, on the good things that uh, oil and gas have done, uh, the technology technolo- uh, technological advances that we've made to work cleaner, more efficient, safer. We don't we don't hear about those things until we're called a villain. So I think we need to be, you know, oil and gas has always been uh, very uh, secretive about information. And this is, this is one of those things where we need to open the door a bit more. We need to be uh, standing up for, for, for what we do. We need to be more clear about things. And Hey, I'm uh, in in 28 years in, in this business and more than 40 countries. Yeah, I've seen some. I've seen some shitty situations. We have a. Uh, we have problems, certainly, but so do manufacturing companies. Uh, you know, so do I'll call it alternative energy sources. You know, in every industry around the world has problems. Uh, so singling out oil and gas, uh, I think, is, is a bit ridiculous in, in my view. Uh, yeah, you know, you've hit, you're hitting, you're hitting on a lot of, of stuff that we've talked about on the podcast. And when I've given speeches, I've talked about, I think, I think probably one of the worst things we did over the last 20 years is not just tell people, Hey, here's what's in frac fluid guys. It's water, it's sand, it's guar, it's little bit of acid and a little bit of antibiotics, you know, and by the way, I'll sit here and drink it. It's tastes horrible, but at the end of the day, it's not some mystery. I mean, the the service companies and the EMP companies running around saying, uh, you know, saying, oh, there's some special sauce to our completion fluid. Bullshit, man. We should have been telling everybody what's in it because I, I kind of feel like just in my career, because I've been in oil and gas, call it 25, 26, 27 years, somewhere in there. That 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 seemed to be a foothold that the environmentalists got. That there's this mystery uh, fluid that's going down the hole and it's winding up in the drinking water. Yep, yep, fully agreed. Yeah, that's that's that uh, that that specific subject alone. I, that would probably take me off on another tangent, but I I spent uh, uh, roughly. 10 years uh, in frack and stimulation and, and uh, evaluation of those fracks, etc. So I have to acknowledge there. Uh, uh, certainly, that is environmentalist uh, started getting the foothold. Uh, but it's, it was it's such a it's I don't I don't know, really know how to say this, but but other than call it very strange that. 
twisted to to suit narrative, right? So it's it, it it's hard to though it's hard for me to understand how people take that as uh, you know what is put out there as as God. Uh, you know, as as true word every time, it's it's yeah. In one sense, I'm going wow. How can how can a whole uh, population be swayed on this, rather than going and, and doing the research and and seeing what the what the real story is? You know, it was interesting. I had Mark Mills and the Montrose Lane. Venture Capital Fund. I don't know if you've run across those guys. They used to be called Cottonwood, but they're energy technology VCs, a lot of digitization, particularly in the oil field, you know, software guys. And they made a really interesting point. And I want to get your take on it because you've actually lived in some countries that I would say embrace the collective more than the United States does. But you know, Mark Mills and the Montrose Lane guys were saying, you know, the environmentalists use the collective argument. We have to save the world. Only we can do good to, to do it. And oil and gas folks have a tendency to be more, what we'll just say, conservative and more focused on the individual and more focused on facts. And so facts come back. And to some degree, you know, if you have this collective argument and it's a fear-based argument that the, the world's going to end or that, you know, oil and gas companies are the boogeyman, it's a much easier sell than running through statistics and the like. And I don't know that I appreciated that until those guys had that discussion because I, you know, I'm a Texan and so I'm always America, the rugged individual, you know, on steroids because I'm a Texan and the like. But I, I just want I'd throw that out there because, I mean, you you've been in some countries that that have different political beliefs than than we do. And so I just wanted to see if you had a reaction to that one way or another. Yeah, you see, uh, I'm seeing different uh, reactions from from different places. Uh now, like Vietnam, for instance, we don't in the in the media here. I don't see any. There's no narrative about oil and gas as the villain. There is nothing written here whatsoever in the in the news about oil and gas. Uh, you you'll see an article here and there about uh, a new wind farm that's going up because they are having getting some investment in in wind and solar projects at the at the moment. Uh, but but there's no narrative uh, against oil and gas here. Uh, Africa in general, uh, country to country dependent, but the overall majority, uh, the thought is uh, we need, we have uh, affordable energy that we can use and a high percentage of our population doesn't even have electricity. So before we think about changing our, our yeah changing our views on on this affordable energy, we're going to use it to uh, get electricity to our people first. Uh, so it is it is funny to see the different uh, to see the different 
narratives and and how they how they sort of shape up. Uh, same, it's a very similar uh, narrative, and you might know in in Europe right now where they're talking about you know 2025, 2030, uh, banning uh, inter- internal combustion engines. So. It's it's different. It's different depending on on the region, uh, for sure, and and certainly how fast uh, people uptake this information. Uh, just an example of that is uh, I I have some Chinese friends, and their overall view of the media is uh, what they put out is uh, I'll just call it nonsense. So they don't listen in, in general. Uh, the population of China doesn't l- listen to the news or what's put out because they know what, what is there is, is sort of a means of, I, I just call it control, uh, control right. of what, what you listen to. Uh, whereas in America, and hey, I, was, I, I lived there until I was in my early 30s. Uh, People really buy into what's what's put out there on the media. I mean, ever since CNN started with uh, 24/7 coverage uh, during the Gulf War, that's been you know it's it's been a, a mainstay everywhere you go. You go to the airport, you've got CNN or, or Fox or, or one of the media stations playing on all the TVs. I mean, it's it's piped into you 24/7. So I, I certainly notice a, a difference in, in that aspect. And I think that that makes a, a huge difference in people's uh, perceptions. Yeah, you know, somebody said the other day on one of the TV stations that I was watching that you can sit around all day and watch 24-hour news and literally count the number of times that somebody says, this is the worst thing since blank, you know, World War II, or this is the worst thing since you know, the civil war, or this is the worst thing since the nuclear bombs went off in Hiroshima. And, you know, the the fact that you could even utter that there is something as bad as the civil war going on in the United States right now is utter nonsense. I mean, that might have been, you know, on one hand, our one hand, our lowest point, on one hand, maybe our highest point, because it ended slavery. So, but to, to sit there and equate things to, to, to that is, you're right, it's just sensationalism, and, and, it, and it drives fear, and it drives the narrative. Um, one, one other thing I want to get your take on, and I kind of went on a diatribe about it earlier in the podcast, so I'll circle back a little, is, you know, much to uh, to some folks' chagrin, I'm a, I'm a big fan of just talking to folks. I mean, I'm not going to go sit down with Hitler. I'm not going to go sit down with with um, um, Charles Manson. But you know, even if somebody disagrees with me, I'll go get a beer with them. You know, and and the like. So I've spent kind of a lot of time talking to what I'll just say the other side you know, kind of liberal environmentalist had a real interesting call as I was driving out to Colorado lady direct messaged me through Twitter. I think just said, Hey, I'm not a person you'd want to talk to blah, blah, blah. I'm an environmentalist, but you know, et cetera, et cetera. I wanted to, 
to pick your brain though, because I heard your podcast about Ashley Watts Ranch and the, you know, and the the leaking wells and the like. And uh, I said, hey, not only am I happy to talk to you, it's a 16-hour drive. So knock yourself out. If I got cell coverage, let's talk. And what I found interesting in these talks, and I'm going to still say it's anecdotal. I'm not willing to say this is for sure right. But a lot of the concern from the left, from the environmentalists, is that they just can't trust us. They can't trust the oil and gas business. It's Valdez, it's Anaconda, it's uh, Macondo, it's that we covered up global warming research and the like. And they almost justify in their mind the hyperbole surrounding, you know, within 10 years, the climate's going to, you know, the the world's going to be on fire because of climate change, because they almost feel like they have to play at that level because they think we have. And so, you know, it's, I don't know if this is, I don't know if I'm ever going to be able to articulate the speech correctly or to create a narrative for it. But I do think just one of the things we've got to do as an industry is show folks that we can be responsible, that we can actually be a partner in this. Because at the end of the day, I mean, there's no doubting the science that CO2 levels have gone up in the atmosphere and it's raised the temperature. And we've gone from, call it 300 parts per million to 425 parts per million today. And that's that's primarily based on burning hydrocarbons and man influences. It's caused the temperature to rise. And we do know if we hit 1,000 parts per million, we'll all be walking around punch drunk because that's what too much CO2 in the air does. So it is something we need to take seriously and we need to be thoughtful getting through. But at the same time, we got to realize that Quality of living and your life expectancy doubles when you stop stop burning shit and wood for fuel and you start burning hydrocarbons. And so anyway, I kind of throw that out there and I'll let you go on on trust and responsibility and the like, because I just think that's that's got to be part of the solution from our side. Absolutely. No, absolutely. We we need to be like like I said before, we need to be more clear on, on, on what we're doing uh, uh, and, and have these difficult conversations, whether they're, uh, whether people are in agreement or, or not. Uh, I also think that that's a, that seems, seems to be a, a hard thing for most people these days is to have a conversation with somebody that doesn't agree, agree with you. Uh, you know, you said that right. you're, you're, you're very easy to have conversations with people that don't agree with you, but I think you'd, you and 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 I would be uh, uh, a small percentage that, that actually have that same mindset. Uh, I know many people who used to be very understanding uh, and and have those difficult conversations that that would just slam the phone down on me now. It's, and I think that's uh, part of part of what we're we're being exposed to with with media, with social media, et cetera, and the way we we actually live our lives. Uh, I think it is a bit uh, funny in a not not in a ha ha sense uh, that talk about for the environment when when uh, uh, 
uh, organizations like the Sierra Club support uh, mass deforestation so that we can burn uh, biomass, so we can burn wood. Now, I don't, I don't know how that's supporting the environment. And for me, it's it's far from uh, supporting the environment, but but it's uh, it is a little bit. Uh, yeah, it brings eye to to what the things that actually happen. Uh, end of the day, money money is the is the main aspect, and and people uh, to basically say what suits the narrative, uh, and that's not that's that's obviously not not a good thing. I don't know what the yeah that particular situation. Uh, I will say that it is in, in all the problems that, that we're told that, that the world is having, but between the CO2 levels increase and the temperature increase and temperature rise, sea level rise. Uh, uh, there's, you know, the, the, li- the list is very long. Uh, we never do discuss the fact that the population is doubling and tripling, quadrupling, you know, every ten years. I don't, those aren't those aren't accurate numbers. That's a those are those, right. that's just spirit, throwing some numbers spirit out there. right. But, yeah, but the population, right. uh, the population is is what we don't look at, and the consumption, the amount that we consume. You know, we don't ever talk about uh, that part of it. What we talk about is we need to shut down oil and gas to build a new infrastructure for solar and windmills. And this is the answer. No, this is not the answer. The answer is we have a a realistic conversation on how we can do things cleaner, safer, more efficient. And we all work together to put uh, solutions in place, which means it's a mix of things. I mean, Hey, windmills are great for uh, a place like Denmark, uh, where they do get capacity from their windmills, where they don't have uh, a large uh, oil and gas base to pull from. Uh, Solar is workable, in my opinion, in single-use instances and households that are away from the grid, etc., but to say that one or the other is what we should go to, and this is what this is this is it, is just in in my mind, it's madness. Yeah, no, I I I agree that, and and I want to say one thing. I'll backtrack just a little. I am totally sympathetic to folks that li- live in regulatory regimes that are incredibly restrictive and are putting oil and gas companies out of business. So I, I totally get those folks. And, you know, I've got, I've got one buddy who, uh, you know, basically wants to, to raise an army and just go to war with the environmentalists. And, and, uh, I ask him, you're kidding. Right. And he says, no, he's not. And I kind of believe him. Uh, so I, I understand those those sentiments. I just I just, you know, all of the trade offs you were just laying out, which I think make a lot of sense. Hey, guys, why don't we do solar here? Let's do wind here. And that, you know, I just don't think we have the credibility with folks 
to be the source for that information. Because, I mean, I think I could make a case that wind turbines are really just China exporting their coal to the United States. I mean, right, because they're all the the wind turbines are built over in China. They're all, you know, all their electricity is powered by coal, you know. Yep. Solar as well. The solar panels. Yeah, too. solar as well. <laughs> Absolutely. Who? Yes. The question is then, who is the who is the person, or who who are the people to uh, to make the case? That, that's that's a, that's a hard one to. I think that's a hard one to answer. Who who is the uh, uh, the organization or the the expert, so to speak, to to, to make that decision? I, and I and I guess. There's probably not really one answer with, uh, you know, with with different regions and different countries and, and different uh, uh, classes of or different social classes. I mean, there's such a, a huge difference between uh, a median salary in the U.S. versus Vietnam or Cambodia versus Angola, West Africa, you know, there's a huge difference there. So there is not a, I don't, I don't think there is a, an, a one answer there. Uh, I don't know. Difficult to difficult situation in my mind. Yeah. Yeah, it, it really is. And it's, it's something though that I appreciate you visiting with me about because it's something we got to do, you know, we've got to figure out how, you know, and not you're you're always going to have extremes on both sides, but how somehow in the middle you can come together and we can actually come up with constructive solutions to a lot of this because there's no doubt we're going to have to slow consumption, which in America that's actually not going to be that big a deal. I mean we you know we can pay a little bit more to put on vapor recovery units and. Uh, you know, and, and so I'm saying slow consumption um, or, you know, the effects of that consumption. We can probably do that in the United States. But if you're in Cambodia, if you're in Vietnam, you know, you want to use as much energy as the United States average per capita uses because, I mean, people want our lifestyle and they're envious of it. And quite frankly, they should. We built something pretty amazing and we built it on the back of really cheap energy. Um, so anyway, no, I appreciate you, uh, you, uh, you chatting with that. Cause I like your perspective of, of having seen a lot in a lot of different countries. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I've been, uh, you know, I've been in, in, in one sense, uh, of course we need to be doing things like I've said a few times, uh, cleaner, more efficient and safer. But at the same time, we can't expect to throttle other countries' advancement and other people's advancement because we think uh, this is not the way to do it anymore. So this is how we grow, grew ourselves, you know? Yeah, I said on one of the podcasts, and I forget which one, who I was talking to, and the devil will obviously be in the details, but there probably is a deal where the United States and maybe some of our allies in Europe in effect finance natural gas infrastructure in China and India. You know, if, if we could go and say, hey, China, India, stop with the coal plants, 
you know, they're bad. We get that natural gas kind of putting the infrastructure in place for that's more expensive than the cheaper coal will help finance that somehow. You know, that that's kind of a lion's share of, of getting something done. Because uh, I said on another podcast, you know, there is no non-peeing section of the pool, right? Somebody pees in the pool, you got pee in the pool. So, you know, we can do all this in the United States, but we got to realize that China and India share the same air we do. Absolutely. My, my thing is, look, we don't, uh, we, we are treating this uh I'm not going to call it a catastrophe because I don't, I, I, I absolutely don't think it is, but we are treating this uh, thing as we live in a closed loop hydraulic system. <laughs> and, and that's putting it in, in simple terms for me. The earth is by no means a closed loop system. You know, what, what happens in, in one place affects what goes on 10,000 miles away. So, trying to control uh, temperature rise and and cutting back in the United States when uh, things are advancing in India, China, West Africa. I mean, I can, I can name a number of regions and countries is, is sort of silly. Uh, and my personal view is we don't, we as humans are never going to be able to control the climate anyway. I mean, looking at historical data, hundreds of millions of years back, the climate changes. It's done that numerous times. It's a dynamic thing. It's going to continue to do that. So, I just, I just think we're we're going down the wrong, we're going down the wrong path. To even having a thought that we can control the climate. Yeah, no, there's definitely that. I mean, part of of what we're seeing with different weather weather patterns are based on 20,000 year cycles of waves in the sea. I mean, so in the ocean. So you're, you're right. I mean, there's a lot of mother nature and I, I think, I think it's, it's been unfair. A lot of the discussion in that anytime climate changes, it's always attributed to man as opposed to no, this is natural stuff. And so you know, all that being said, uh, I think, you know, being able to talk about it, I think being able to talk to the other side about it, hopefully being able to find some sort of common ground. So every situation is not, I need to build a pipeline here. No, I'm going to stop you from building the pipeline. Hopefully the discussion's more, hey, you can build that pipeline we need X, Y, and Z in terms of safety measures on it. And oh, by the way, hate to make you do this, but you got to go two and a half miles out of the way because that is the nature preserve for the sea otter or whatever it is. You know, hopefully we could get to a point where we're having constructive conversations like that because where we are now is just we're going to, in effect, get rid of the US business and we're not going to stop consumption. And it just means Russia, uh, Saudi Arabia, hell, maybe even if they get their act together, Venezuela are going to produce all the oil. And those guys don't give a shit. It's going to be 
10 times worse than if we let people produce stuff in West Texas. Yeah. Yeah. In agreement there for sure. Uh, uh, I, I hope that we can get to those, that point of, of having those constructive talks. I'm with you. Uh, I, I tell you, it doesn't, there are certainly times when I, when I have to wonder, you know, wow, is this going to keep, are we going to keep going down this uh, hole until, until things just crash up? Are we actually going to have those talks? Uh, I, I hope that we do get to a point of, of having those talks because that is, that is what needs to happen. No, I think you're, I think you're, uh, I think you're absolutely right. Well, Grant, I, uh, I got kind of three different emotions that I'm going to close the podcast with, you know, one really grateful for you coming in, telling, uh, telling your story. The, the second emotion is just a, wow, holy freaking cow. I mean, what a, what a story and, and all, and, you know, obviously the, the third, uh, emotion is kind of heart goes out to you. Cause that's a, that's a shitty thing to have to go through. And, you know, you told it from your side, but I'm sure your wife and kids maybe even had equal amounts of dark moments and uncertainty and the like. And so really, really feel for you for having to, to go through that. And, you know, not, not that Shell's listening to the Chuck Yates needs a job podcast, but if you are, this would be a good thing to step up and do the right thing on. Absolutely agree. And I'm, uh, I am very grateful to be able to tell the story and help one person avoiding uh, something like this happening to them. Then, then great. And then I did my I did my job, and that was that's the whole point of, of putting this story out there. Yeah, of course, uh, of well, course, my family were were also suffering as well. I, I would not leave them out. No idea what was going on in their minds during this whole thing, but. Uh, but hey, we're on we're we're on the other side of it now. Now it's uh find a find a new home for for work and and keep moving forward. I'm I'm all about uh, forward progress. Well, definitely thoughts and uh, prayers are with you from uh, from us and and all of us at Digital Wildcatters. Thanks so much. I appreciate that. Mm-hmm.